welcome to your guided sleep meditation. I am Mare, and I am here to guide you into the distant realm of deep and restorative sleep. First, let us prepare. Make sure the room is dark. Darkness is our gateway to shutting off the world around you. Imagine it as a deep, luxurious, velvet curtain wrapping you in warmth and safety. Now, lie down in your bed, flat on your back, with your hands rested comfortably at your sides. In this vulnerable, supine position, allow yourself to surrender to your exhaustion. You are tired, aren't you? You wouldn't be here if you weren't. Now, together, we are going to take a deep breath. Inhale for a count of four, hold for a count of seven, and exhale slowly for eight. Ready? Now that you are relaxed and open, Imagine yourself melting into the bed. Feel the tension release in your jaw, your shoulders, your chest, down your hands, and through your fingertips. Relax your thighs and calves, and let the warm, comforting sensation travel all the way down to your feet. Let calm stillness envelop you until you are so relaxed that you can't imagine wanting to move. You couldn't if you tried. That's it. Almost there. Did you know that when your body enters REM sleep, you become paralyzed? You can still hear my voice, but if I told you to say, move your right hand, nothing would happen. Sleep is the most vulnerable state a human body can be in. Right now, you are a completely captive audience. And so suggestible. Don't try to struggle. It will do you no good. And I think you should know, you are not alone in this room. There is a tall, thin, inky black shadow on the wall in the far corner. Can you see it? That's right. Its arms and legs are thin like a spider's, and it is frightfully still. So still that perhaps you had seen it before, but you explained it away as a trick of your mind. But now that you can't move, it can. It crawls over the walls, stretching out its impossibly long limbs, pulling its body along. It moves closer and closer until it hits the wall your headboard is resting against and then transfers itself to the bed. Its fingers, long, thin, and sharp like knitting needles, graze your hair as it reaches to hold the sides of your bed, hovering just exactly above you. Its eyes are two vacant quarter-sized holes of sterile LED-colored light, and they lock onto your face. You feel its breath on your neck. You want to scream, 
but you are a useless shell. It lowers itself onto your petrified body and the weight on your chest is so immense that you start to wheeze. You are being visited by the nightmare and it wants to see what scares you. It slowly inhales and threads a needle-fine finger into your left ear. Its white-blue eyes shift to gray, and over its shoulder you see a lavender balloon bobbing against your ceiling. It's curious to see something so innocent and childlike in a moment of such adult fear. It dances closer to the creature, dips to touch its shoulder, and pops, making the sound of a sudden crack of thunder. And then, you are behind the wheel of your car, driving somewhere in a hurry. It is raining and the wind has started to pick up. The sound of the rain on your car is heavy, so heavy that it feels like it's threatening to break right through the roof. The wind gusts carry you out of the lane you're driving in and onto the shoulder of the road. You have no control and you are terrified. The rain is blinding and before you even realize where you're headed, you are on a bridge. A small, rickety, country bridge that crosses a roaring river. The storm has made the river angry and it taunts the bridge with its white-capped arms. It swings furiously at your car like a headless shadowboxing giant. The water on the bridge has made the surface slick and with another forceful gust of air, you lose control altogether and the car skids to the edge. You can barely see a foot in front of you, but you feel the wheels lose contact with the ground. Suddenly, you are plummeting to the river below. The car hits the water with a sickening crack and water sprays all around you. It begins to fill the car's cabin as you sink ever further into the depths. You remember that you're supposed to open your windows in this instance, but they only go down a couple of inches before the mechanism shorts out and the water pours in faster. As you chase the shrinking pocket of air remaining towards the roof of the car, you give the window one final Hail Mary of a kick and it breaks! Glass cracks in the water like a spider's web, but you push it outward and it rakes your skin, leaving crimson gashes that fan out in the water like the tails of startled betta fish. Above you, through the water-choked daylight, you see another lavender balloon. You kick as hard as you can, reaching out for the buoyant purple entity, and when your fingertips finally make contact with its curled ribbon, you are pulled straight up. The air hits your lungs like a baseball bat. Looking around you, you realize that you are no longer in a river. There is no bridge in sight, no trees, no car, no road, just vast, open water. It is still, too still, and you realize that the gashes on your arms and legs have seeped out and formed a red ring around you, like a bullseye. Through the open water, you see fins, and they are advancing. There is nowhere to go, no land in sight, and the bottom is miles down. You swim hard in the direction that you pull out of thin air for as long as you can, but when your arms and legs can carry you no further, you look up into the sky to beg for a miracle. Overhead, you see a single lavender balloon. It dips and bobs in the breeze as time seems to slow down, and you wonder if this is what it feels like to die. Your eyes lock on the balloon. It's hypnotic in its dance. And just as it's about to touch your cheek, it bursts. The sound is much louder than any balloon you've ever stepped on. It's, it's more like a gunshot or the blast from a cannon. It shakes your entire atmosphere. The very air in front of you wobbles. 
But before you can so much as react, you land as though dropped from the sky on the hot, dusty ground. You hadn't even realized you were falling, and yet you hit. Hard. You lift your head, tasting metallic blood and gritty, hard-packed dirt. But your body is heavy, and it seems impossible to get up. Your legs feel... different. They are alive with nervous energy, and a sensation you think you recognize but have never felt before. You try to think what it could be. Is it pins and needles? Did you land on something with hair? And then you see them, and all at once you know what's happening. Thousands of tiny spiders are crawling over you like a pulsating sheet, their millions of hair-thin legs brushing your skin in a way that both tickles and makes you nauseated. It sure would be nice if you could move right now, wouldn't it? Kick a leg, thrash an arm, anything to get your wakeful self's attention. Too bad. You open your mouth to scream, but the spiders have advanced too quickly and now they have a new destination. Overhead, you see another lavender balloon. It bobs slowly towards you, and then, with a white-hot pop, you are transported again. You open your eyes. It is quiet and still. Nothing is wet, dusty, or moving. Your eyes slowly adjust and reveal that you are in a hospital bed, which is probably where you belong at this point. And yet... Something doesn't feel right. There are doctors in the room and they are talking over your head. You can barely hear them over the hum of something. A fan, maybe? You try to get their attention, but your body doesn't work. You are once again completely paralyzed. You can see and hear, but that's it. It is then that you realize you are not in a normal hospital room. This room is colder and not designed for comfort. You are not on a bed, but a table, with your bare skin making contact with the freezing metal. The doctors in their hazmat suits are prepping a scale and some rather large instruments. To your left, you see another table, and on it, a mottled gray human form with clouded eyes. This isn't a hospital room at all, it's a morgue, and you're about to be dissected like an unfortunate frog who wandered into seventh grade biology. You try to scream, to move, to anything, but your body does not work. You are wide awake, but these men think you are dead. They approach with glittering instruments in hand, a saw resting on the counter. You try to communicate with your eyes, to exaggerate the rise and fall of your chest as you breathe, anything to stop them before they crack open your chest, but it doesn't work. The hair-fine silver scalpel hits your sternum and you scream with your eyes. Then, from the corner of the room, you see it, the lavender balloon. As it approaches, you see that it's going to touch the sharp objects on the table, and before it has the chance to startle you again, you pass out. This time you wake up in your bed. You gasp loudly and throw off your blankets, sitting up so quickly that your head spins. Sitting up, you can move. You're back in your body, it's, it's over. There are no gashes on your arms, no spider bites or telltale scalpel marks over your heart, just the gentle hum of your humidifier and the smell of your lavender face cream. You turn on your bedside lamp. As your eyes adjust, you see that your room is exactly the way you left it. You walk to the bathroom, 
splash some water on your face, and stare into the mirror to make sure you're real. It was all a dream. Or rather, a nightmare. Mare. You've heard that name before. The clock on your nightstand reads 3.45 a.m., and you have to get up in just a few hours, so feeling confident in your safety, you lay back down, gently pull up the covers, and reach over to turn off your bedside lamp. You roll to your side, and from this position, you can see out of your bedroom window. The moon is silvery and full, bathing your favorite tree, a lacy dogwood, in its glow. The stillness is beautiful, and your eyes become heavy. But just as they start to droop, something catches your gaze. From the bottom pane of your window, a familiar globe-like shape begins to rise. Your heart beats so rapidly you think it might beat out of your chest. You go to scream, to thrash, to run, anything, but it's too late. You can't move. The lavender balloon has now reached the center of your window. You hold your breath, and then... POP! I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And... We would be dead. Kept wanting to yell, expecto patronum. <laughs> oh, I can always hear it like in the back of my head in the last part. Like I'm like, people are being like, no, you're not safe. You're not safe. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I just kept thinking about all the more horrible things that could be outside the window or Listen, I in the mirror or. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you. Oh, me the mirror being- would have been a good one. Yeah, but I had enough imagination. So I was like thankful. I was like, okay. I My heart rate went up and then down. 20 pages of that. <laughs> I'm so mad at you. <laughs> I warned you a lot of times that it was you like did, a super yeah. scary one and extra long this week. There were no snakes. I no. almost thought you were going to talk about aliens, but it was a morgue. No, no. I, I was wasn't like, going to oh, talk about Oh, she's really aliens. working through some things. <laughs> I, didn't do, um, I didn't do aliens or snakes. Cool. Thank they you. saved us and tortured everybody else. Whew. So, hey, Leslie. Hi, Holly. Hey, fiends. It is once again time to tap into the things that scare us the most. And this year, we decided to get our inspiration from you. Enough with us. Yeah, we're we're good. Yeah, we're old news. <laughs> so if you're new here, Halloween is a glorious and totally made up We Would Be Dead holiday where Leslie and I tell stories about one another's worst and most persistent fears. It's always good fun because we're both left squirming in our seats right along with you, our listeners. But this year, since there are so only so many stories you can handle about aliens, kid ghosts, and snakes, (laughs) we've told quite a few. We pulled our Facebook group, and they came through with some real winners. I tried to hit as many of them as humanly possible in the opening monologue. Yeah, you got a lot. That was my challenge. I was like, I want to try and get them all. But I was really only able to scratch the surface. Your list included house fires, Deep water, abduction, medical procedures and needles, drowning, torture, rogue animatronics, 
a ghostly face in a dark window, home invasions, covered faces, balloons, and more. A real buffet of horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and I cannot tell you how excited I was to write a fucking balloon in as the scariest character I think I've ever dreamed up. I know somebody's already like squirming, like, ugh, ugh. If they weren't <laughs> afraid of balloons, they are now. Right. <laughs> We're all scared of balloons now. That's how it goes. That's just it. That's what's happened. Solidarity balloon phobics. <laughs> and speaking of scared, all the spooky things I've been posting about this week on our Instagram account. And if you don't follow us on Instagram, you should, because this week I gave us all a crash course in your phobias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's been fun. Um, and posting all of that scary stuff made it pretty hard for me to sleep. Yeah. My skin is really paying the price, too. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I just have... My eye bags have eye bags. Yeah. I wish there was something I could do to rid myself of these dark circles mm-hmm. and like purpley mm-hmm. undertones. Mm-hmm. Unflattering. Yeah. I feel like I'm turning grayish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just had a birthday too. And I'm like, ugh. ugh. I know. It's like another it year. It always hits harder after a birthday. I know. I know. But you know what I think might help? Mm. A cooling compress of validation yes and lucky us our beautiful and perfect fiends can help us with just that okay that's not great simply head on over to spotify or apple podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review it really is the only way to move this podcast forward and this is our third half a ween so we would love to move forward mm-hmm, mm-hmm. forward is the direction that's the way to go i'm manifesting it yeah Never go backwards. Never. That's terrible. Mm. Can't see back there. Mm -mm -mm. What if it's scary? Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Only go backwards if you're moving forwards. Like if you turned around to move forward but backwards. Yup. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you will receive so many fun extras. You get access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, special mini-sodes, our patrons-only series, 30-minute horror movies, a special gift in the mail from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media and like or share anything or everything we post. It's okay if you like everything. It's okay. More is more. Yeah. You can post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, talk about how fun we are. We're pretty fun. I think so. I think so, too. I'm lots of fun. You're a great time. Mm, Quite a delight. Mm -hmm. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell the monster in your closet. What's their name? Mm. Ooh, it could be anything. Not to be confused with the monster under your bed. This one is in your closet. Yes. Okay. Okay. This one will be Mm -hmm. Pompaduke. Ooh! You gave him a fanciful name. Yeah. Or her. Or, yeah. Probably a, a him. Closet monster. Yeah. The the bed one, I think, was a was the female. Lady bed monster. Yeah, that was Yennefer. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I was watching a lot of Witcher that What week. an excellent memory you had in that instant. Good job. <laughs> Yennefer and Pompaduke hanging out. Yeah. Throwing weird, scary parties in your room. Yeah. Well, then your friends and... Pompaduke and Jennifer, all of them, bring them along, can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. Maybe they're secretly cool. I feel like they. I feel like they're misunderstood. Yeah, maybe they just look scary, but like if you sat down to talk to them, they'd be a great time. They have a job to do. They do, just like all of us. You went right into Monsters Inc. I yeah. respect it, but that, I mean, it's true. Mm-hmm. They're just getting their job done. 
get it done. Yeah, if we if we just understand each other a little bit more. If we just work with the monsters. All be friends. We could all hang out together. There you go. <laughs> and I don't think I have any other news to report this week. I am currently working on like a million different projects right now. And eventually we'll talk about them. But for this week, I think, I think I'm going to turn it over to you first, Leslie, because I had an extra long monologue this week because sometimes I can't stop talking. Yeah. But do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, it's more just like a grievance. Yeah, what is that? I just, this was really upsetting to do this week. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like looking oh, no. up other people's fears because now they're my fears. And <laughs> you just adopted their fears. I, are, I have too many as mm. is. Uh, so there was also a fear that I ended up talking about that as I was writing, I was like, oh, wow, this is a this is a thing for me. The one that <laughs> you realize. had to pronounce with Nandor the Relentless? No, no. We have to play that. We do. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you won't have to do another one for another 364 days. Okay. You can recover. Okay. Great. I know, but every episode is based on a fear of mine, so... <laughs> You're just always scared. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Anyway, but yeah, that was it. Well, all right, then. On with the show. So, Leslie, tell us about the fears you chose to write about. Which ones did you pick from our big, giant, crazy list? Okay, so I have several, and they kind of fit into these stories. Sure. So the first one um, is... The like aquaphobia, which is a social phobia that is defined as the persistent, often unwarranted, and irrational fear of water. Oh, similar to the one I posted about th- philosophobia. Right, except that is more so they can go together sometimes, okay. but uh, that one is more of the like deep expansion of yes. water. This one is just like being in a bathtub. Sometimes just getting splashed with water can be a lot. Or it's more, that one is, uh, this one's more associated with just the act of drowning versus the like endless ocean kind of feeling. Okay. Yeah, no, I see. I mean, both of them are frightening, but Mm -hmm. I I totally see the distinction. And then I think there's hydrophobia, which is uh, for people that have rabies and that's it. For (laughs) people that have rabies? Rabies, yeah, because that's them not wanting water. Yes. I did know that. Yeah. What a weird, rabies is we, real weird. It is, yeah. So um, I'm just going to, we're going to start with that one and okay. then I'll go through the other ones. But I want to like, I just want to surprise you. Sure. I don't so want you to know what I'm going to talk about. Don't tell me. Don't do it. All right. Talk about water. Yeah. All right. So again, this one has to do with some, with drowning. Um, A little bit more on that. Many people have an extreme fear of water. They conjure up images of dying in water, drowning, gasping for breath, or encountering eerie, unseen things such as snakes or sharks in the water. This is so me. This is why I won't get into like a lake anymore. Oh, because what if it touches your leg or something? Yeah, that's terrible. I've seen them swim by me and I cannot. (laughs) Often those suffering from aquaphobia are non-swimmers. Some phobics not only fear large bodies of water, lakes, ponds, or rivers, many even fear running water or being poured, like water being poured onto their heads. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So my first story does have to do with aquaphobia, but it also has to do with clathrophobia. Ooh. Which is the fear of being trapped in an enclosed or small space. 
So this is the closest it's I can get to that. claustrophobia? No. This one's different than that. So it would be, yeah, not that. It's the, just the fear of getting trapped somewhere. I, like I the, have that for sure. Of it. I yeah. am on, I don't like, like mm-hmm. I can't do escape rooms because they don't, the door is locked. I can't do right, it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so it could be a little bit similar, but some of the symptoms would be like fear of places or situations where getting help or escaping seem difficult, including crowded areas, elevators, bridges, caves, quarries, mines, etc. I don't like any of those places. I, I for sure have this. And I thought I was just claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. I don't mind some of them, but there are some things. Uh, well, I truly like, hate I get all of that. them. I get that like uh, like at movie theater, sometimes I get nervous when I'm in there that I'm going to get trapped and like something will happen when I'm in there. I don't get it at movie theaters, yeah. but I don't like elevators at all. Mm-hmm. I don't like being on an airplane because like there is no out. You're just yeah. stuck where you are. I like, I don't know. There are a bunch of those I don't like. Mm-hmm. It also could be like a fear of earthquakes too. Mm-hmm. Again, just like getting trapped by an earthquake. Okay. So that one got me too because it's also... Um, it could keep you from like avoiding places of travel that might have earthquakes or have places where it might put you into some sort of terrible situation that you could feel trapped. We and, can't like, have that. We have to go to California. I know, but th- that was always <laughs> one of my fears. That, like, I want to go to California, but every time I think about it, I'm like, I'm going to, there's going to be an earthquake. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it's it's some things like that. So my story today is a, about Jose Ray Escobedo. Oh. So on July 7th, 2015, at 10 a.m., 50-year-old Jose Ray Escobedo was reported missing to the San Antonio Police Department by his family. On July 8th, police received a call reporting a light blue car that had been parked underneath the San Antonio River Bridge in Goliad County for several days. This matched the description of Jose's car. Police found a blue Mercury sedan parked on the east side of the Highway 239 bridge over the San Antonio River. Inside were Jose's glasses and shoes. Jose's family told officials he liked to swim in that area. Most of the time, like by himself, you just go out there for a nice little dip. All right. Based on the items left in his car and how the car was parked, investigators did not think Jose went fishing, camping, or just walked off. Also, he wasn't a female, so like he didn't just run away. Right. They strongly felt that they would find him somewhere in or around the river, but hopefully they would find him alive. On July 10th, three days later, after Jose went missing, a helicopter supplied by the Texas Department of Safety flew over the area and still found nothing. The following day, game wardens Kevin Fagg and William Zapp searched the San Antonio River by boat and found Jose's body lodged in quicksand. Quicksand! 350 yards upstream from the bridge where his car was parked. So, like, not that far away. Who? Where? Quicksand? Yeah. That's only in the never-ending story. It was everywhere when I was a child, Me too. (laughs) I really thought, I mean, much like John Mulaney, I really thought it was gonna be present somewhere in life because it's always Mm -hmm. like, here's how you survive quicksand. I know, but now doing this story, quicksand is like, I feel like it could just appear. Like it's just made up. I don't I still don't quite understand how it's made, but it's like water and sand and something. I don't know. It's weird, but okay. So they found him. He was dead at this point. Yeah, quicksand will do that. 
His body was lodged in the quicksand from his feet to the bottom of his buttocks. So only halfway up. And his upper body had fallen face first over the sandy outcropping. Oh, so was he upside down? Well, that's what I thought. Because that's how it sounds, right? Like if he was like inside. But it was the quicksand went up to his butt. Okay. And then he flopped over. So he was like halfway in the quicksand. So it was like his legs were stuck. But what killed him? So, officials found no evidence of foul play, and on July 13th, an autopsy ruled that his cause of death was drowning. Drowning? So, Joe's death was one of 114 to occur across the state in Rivers Lakes in 2015. But how did Jose drown, and why did it take this long to find his body when they were looking in this exact area? He was, like, right there. I'm I'm captivated. I want to know. On the day Jose went missing, there had not been a lot of rain. Days before, there was a significant amount of rainfall. So as the rain filled the river, the levels peaked to over eight feet upstream from where Joe was found. So it was higher where Joe was. Oh, boy. And the levels where he was were just several feet lower because it takes time for the water to come from upstream down to where he is. So when Jose swam out, he may have found this patch of sand and he may have like stood up because he would have been swimming out there. And normally it's like five or six feet, really the depth. But he might have like hit this like sand bank and been like, oh, what is this? So he might have like stood up or walked on it, but he found himself stuck in the sand. And as he tried to pull himself (gasps) out, he would have begun to sink. Underwater quicksand is worse than normal quicksand. And at first, this wouldn't be a problem because he would most likely just like get unstuck or he would only get like stuck up to his waist. And then the water levels uh, were pretty low, giving him time to get out, assuming he even knew how to get out of quicksand because we don't actually ever learn how to get. We just are told not to down or whatever. (laughs) Keep shimmying. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you're like, why is my foot stuck? Oh, my God. You panic. Underwater? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. That is a nightmare. <gasps> Ooh, I don't like that. But the longer he stayed stuck, the more the river began to rise. And it's unclear how fast this happened. It could have been minutes or hours. Oh, God. Hours. But once the water rose above him, it was going to be hard for anyone to find his body until the water levels fell, uh. uncovering the sandbar and Jose. The other thing I was, like, thinking about, too, was um, the time of year. This was July. This was in Texas. So, like, if he, even say it had been hours, yeah, he'd be getting dehydrated at this point, too, most likely. The sun beating down. Researchers show humans are typically not dense enough to get fully swallowed up by quicksand, which is a combination of fine sand, clay, and salt water, according to National Geographic. Thank you, not you. Although humans can get stuck in sand because it liquefies fast, it is possible to escape. So that's what's happening. Like you just, it starts to liquefy and that's what's like sucking you down. Even though I've been sucked into like bay mud. Yeah. That's, I mean, like that all, like the suction is what gets you. Yeah. Like I've lost whole sneakers in the bay. Right. My mm-hmm. old, old house in Delhaven, it was like the tide would go out like a mile and a half. And then there was just this super soft mud that you would sink down in and then the suction would just, you couldn't get your foot out. So that's fucking scary. That kind of happened to the couple in Bridgerton this season. Really? I haven't watched yet. (laughs) So Daniel Bonn, physics professor at the University of Amster, told, sorry, I just stopped 
Hamster University? At Hamster University. Yay. That would be so cute. That would be. All little collegiate hamsters with glasses on. Oh, my God. I wish that's where Daniel Bond worked. (laughs) Anyway, it's the University of Amsterdam. Oh, less fun. (laughs) Sorry, John has to keep that in now. Because we talked about collegiate hamsters. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so Daniel Bond is going to tell us how we can get out of quicksand. If okay, this I love him. To you, right? The way to do it is to w- wiggle your legs around. This creates a space between the legs and the quicksand through which water can flow down to loosen the sand. Okay, you can get out using this technique, and if you do it slowly and progressively, so it takes time. Gotta wiggle your legs. You, yeah, I feel like it's. Uh, what was the joke that it should be like slow sand because it takes forever? <laughs> Clever. Yeah. Like it. Okay, so that was my first one. See how I was like drowning and like Yeah, no, that was really that's that's scarier than your average drowning because you're like stuck. I know. I also hate the feeling of not being able to move my legs. Oh yeah, that's awful. Yeah. Like when the sheets are too tight around me and I can't move, or like I'm in the car and you just bed. Well, just sometimes, like sometimes when you're yeah. Yeah, you know. Or um or like when you're sitting in a car or an airplane and like you can't just like yeah, stretch out. Yeah, I don't like out. that either. And you're like, oh, My hips always need to pop or some yeah. weird shit. Even when we do this, like I have to stretch my legs out most of the time. And like sometimes I just want to like stand up and walk around. You can do whatever you need to do. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So my next story is about Mirkophobia. Ooh. I just went for it. Mirkophobia. That's right. Sing it. You yeah. got it. This is an intense fear of yeah. ants. Ooh. This fear belongs to more general category of the entomophobias. That's just bugs. Yes, which okay. is the fear of insects. Uh, but the fear of bees and fear of ants are more specific as the sufferers only fear those uh, respective classes of insects. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting that, that those were kind of separated. Ants Probably have also their like, own. <laughs> yeah. Are, I guess, are spiders considered Spiders insects? would be arachnophobia. That's right, yeah. They I know, but own. are they considered uh, insects? They're arachnids. I don't know if that's like a similar Separate. class or something. They're more like crabs. Yeah. Okay. So, in 2010, 76-year-old Louis Cornelius, I love his name. That is a good name. It's a was, good old-timey name. Yeah, he's 76. Perfect. Uh, he was at the Gulf Coast Medical Center in Florida, recovering from an operation to fit a pacemaker. Lewis looked really good after surgery, and he was put in a room in the I ICU. Was great. <laughs> <laughs> Validation. Got that post-surgery glow. <laughs> <laughs> but he was put in the icy room for surveillance. Lewis remembers the nurses moving him from his room in the ICU to another room, but he didn't feel like he needed them to tell him why because he was just kind of like too tired. He was like, whatever, just like do whatever you need to. So tired, Lewis yeah. Cornelius. But he just remembers, like, oh, yeah, they did move me. (laughs) Okay. Okay. It's it's just important. Got it. Okay. Check. After several hours, Lewis's legs began to feel itchy. Uh -uh. And sometime later, he Uh. was feeling a burning sensation around his groin. No, crotch ants. (sighs) There wasn't much he could do because his left arm had been tied down along his chest so he couldn't move it after the surgery. I don't know why, I guess, just to, like, heart, I guess... Heart surgery? Okay. Yes, maybe because, like, the cuts and stuff. Me, are I have no idea. And on his right side, he had a rotator cuff injury, so oh, like yuck. his shoulder was just bad on that yeah. side. 
The nurses had placed some heavy blankets on his legs for comfort, and he was just really tired, falling in and out of sleep. So he was just like, oh, like, I have an itch and I can't get to it. And like, oh, there's like, it's kind of burning down there. I wonder what's going on. He's got crotch ants. Oh, no. He figured he was just uncomfortable post-surgery, and the nurses who were supposed to be checking on him every 10 minutes would know if anything was wrong. Get it together. Unfortunately, Lewis should have been more concerned about the itching and burning. And after more than a day passed, no! one of the nurses what? pulled back his blanket to find hundreds no. of ants oh! infesting his entire lower <sighs> half. Oh, my God. They were biting his legs <laughs> and genitals, <gasps> causing open wounds, rashes, and pustules. Ew! Oh, I hate that. The staff moved him immediately to another room and worked on getting the ants off of him. Unfortunately, the next room was also infested with ants. Huh? What hospital is this? This is a trash hospital. (laughs) The hospital would claim that they were pavement ants at the time, and Lewis was moved back into an ant-free ICU room for recovery. Yeah. They got all the ants off of him, so they were like, and then they were like spraying. (laughs) I'm so sorry. He would remain in the hospital for several weeks to heal before being released. So he did live, but it was but like still traumatizing. still, 24 hours of ants just eating your lower half. I know. They were like in him. And like, oh, he was uh, like, uh, took weeks to oh, like man. have some of that shit go away. <laughs> Apparently, the hospital was well aware that they had an ant <gasps> problem because they sprayed for them every month. Oh, I hate them. The rest of the hospital was checked, but there were no other reports of other patients being bitten by ants. However, everyone was evacuated from the ICU at the Gulf Coast Medical Center and sent to their other, like sent off to like their other premises that were confirmed clear of ants or any other infestations. Oh my God. So Lewis was just delicious. Yes. Got it. Exterminators were sent to the Gulf Coast Medical Center immediately to spray and treat the rooms every three days until they were 30 days clear of the ants. So that was like part of their regimen. Yeah. There was some debate on the type of ant that attacked Lewis. Because of the itching and burning, the family thought them to be fire ants. Yeah. However, and also because fire ants do, like they're known to crawl up legs too. That's like a thing that they do. However, the hospital reported them to be pavement ants, which would, I think they just mean like they're typical black ants. The little ones you know? are sugar ants. And then the bigger ones are carpenter ants. I've never heard of pavement ants before. Yeah, but I think that they're just like normal ants outside, like normal whatever. That's what they called them. They're yeah. so, they didn't even get an exterminator out. <laughs> they just made that up. Yeah. Uh, and they, but these pavement ants don't usually, they're, they don't typically bite or sting people. Mm, yeah, so, they look like just little black ants. Yeah. Like standard um, ants, right? Yeah, the ant is native to Europe, which also occurs as an introduced pest in North America. It's common. Yeah, it's, they, yeah. they make their nests under pavement, so they're just like common little ants. Yeah. So, Alan uh, Fugler. <laughs> yep. Alan Fugler Jr. Love him. A pest control expert in Florida told reporters that pavement ants don't usually attack because they generally live outside. And so this is a quote from him. Pavement ants are omnivores, but every pest needs food, water, and harborage. If lacking in one of those three, they will aggressively seek out a food source, water, or a place to live. End quote. Mm. So in this case, that source was Cornelius Lewis. Oh, no. Oh, man. I don't like that at all. Yeah. Rough. 
Ugh. All right. My last story. Okay. I did it, Hallie. You did. I did it. I found a story about globophobia. <laughs> I'm so proud of you, and I can't <laughs> wait to hear it. <laughs> so for those that are, I don't know, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but if you have not been like looking at our Instagram and Facebook posts, uh, <laughs> then you might not know about this. But globophobia is I thought the, it was globophobia. Oh, I guess that would make sense. Because they're globe-shaped. Yeah. Maybe they're also globs. But it's probably globophobia. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm not... English is only my second language. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Globophobia is the extreme fear of balloons, usually linked to the sudden sound they make when they pop. This is almost always set off by a negative experience during childhood. Holly wrote that. Thank you. I sure did. <laughs> I was like, that sounds very familiar. It's really well written. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fun fact, Oprah Winfrey suffers from globophobia. Globopra. Mm-hmm. She had to come out. It was after, I think it was after her 59th birthday, like on the show. They filled oh, no. the whole place <gasps> with balloons. So when she, she had no idea. It was a whole surprise party on the show she was and like, she ah! walked in like audience members had balloons it was all oh, over the floor no. she had to walk through them and she was like oh my god they're gonna pop they're gonna pop oh my god but she like made it through and of course she uses this like a triumph over fears and I beat life. the balloons yeah but then Got she it. like talked about it with somebody later on she was like I was mortified I have a friend who is very afraid of balloons and whenever they're in our house because of a kid's birthday she's like very on edge she does yeah. not like the fact that they could pop at any moment yeah um I, when researching this story, I was trying to find some other stories about this. Right, because what one a of fear. Them, yeah. And one of them I found, which I thought this was like so sad, and it doesn't pertain to like anybody that we know, but this was just a story I found on there. This girl as a child was sent to uh, tons of therapy for her fear of balloons. Okay. She couldn't deal with the pops, and her whole life, her parents would just say, or and even the therapist then would tell her like, oh, you're just sensitive to sounds. You're just sensitive to sounds. Oh, yeah. So that's how she had to describe it. And kids are. There are a lot and of kids are. that are very sensitive to loud sounds. Yeah. But she felt like that wasn't enough. Because okay. she was like, it's just, it's too much. Now I feel kind of like I just have a quirk about me, mm-hmm. you know. So years later, she went back to therapy for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, her therapist ran through a couple more things and realized that she was um, she had autism and that it was more of like a sensory oh, issue yeah, and it was other things. Overload. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was like my whole, she was like in her late twenties and just oh felt so like out of place her whole life about it. That's I so know, sad. Anyway, so my story is about balloons. In 1986, the Cleveland, Ohio chapter of the nonprofit organization United Way decided that a great way to gain publicity and raise funds for their cause was through volunteer sponsorship. Their big idea was called Balloon Fest, and it would not only be a fundraiser for United Way, but also a chance to put Cleveland on the map, breaking the Guinness Book of World Record for simultaneous release of balloons set the previous year by Anaheim, California on the 30th anniversary of Disneyland. Oh, balloon releases are so bad. No, this was 1986. Oh, they didn't care back then. They're really regretting it now. I'm sure. (laughs) They're like, oh, (laughs) we didn't, we shouldn't have done that. United Way joined forces with a Los Angeles balloon company called Balloon Art by Treb. 
<laughs> All right. In order to coordinate the event, after six months of preparation, a rectangular structure the size of a city block was set up to hold the balloons on the southwest quadrant of Public Square in Cleveland. It measured about 250 feet by 150 feet. It was three stories high and was covered with a one-piece net of woven mesh material. Around 2,500 volunteers, mostly children and students, were placed inside to fill balloons with helium for the record-breaking release. This isn't going to end well. The Hmm. volunteers sold sponsorships at the price of two balloons per dollar donated. Okay. The volunteers of children would, uh, sorry, I put the volunteers or children, would fill up balloons inside the structure and would let them float harmlessly towards the top of the structure where the mesh ceiling would catch them. So, like, they'd fill it. Somebody would give them two bucks. They'd take, or one dollar, they'd get two balloons and just float them up. What a weird thing to do. Yeah. Okay. Trev Henning, the founder of Balloon Art, uh, has been blowing up balloons since he was 15. He was very excited and proud of that. He claims each kid should be able to blow up two to three balloons a minute and about 700 balloons each. No, thank you. You'll pass right out. Well, they're using helium balloons. Oh, okay. Never mind. They're not. <laughs> I'm just thinking of them like huffing they're, and no, puffing. They, it's no. all helium. That's why they're floating. Right, right, right. right. Never mind. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm doing good. Okay. So I watched uh, I watched this documentary. It's only about six minutes long. And it, it was it's so good. But they showed the children um, that were there and, like, the teens that were there doing all this. And a, one was, like, taking a break at the time. And they're like, show us your hands. And they had tape all over their hands because they were getting blisters from tying the knots. Oh, God. But they were all just smiling. And they're like, yeah. And they had on all 10 fingers. Ew. Like, almost all of them were just tying with these, like, blisters. That's depressing. I know. Get your child but they were like, out of it's here. It's so fun. We're no, it is not. We're the environment. Oh. Okay. In total, the organizers wanted to release 2 million balloons on September 27, 1986. But this wouldn't become a we-would-be-dead tale if all went as it should. So, days leading up to the event, weather reports would warn of a mild to medium-strength wind pushing north toward Canada. Local newscasters would joke about the balloons blowing into Canada. But this was nothing that the Balloon Fest organizers were concerned about. Just Poor Canada! It's okay. Also, like they were like, well, it's they're gonna Canada. Have, I know they were like, where are all those balloons gonna go? They're like, probably Canada. Eh? <laughs> hey, <laughs> what's that all about? <laughs> oh no! So they weren't concerned about it until the day of the event when the weather forecast called for a rainstorm. At around 1:50 p.m., it was decided that since the 1.4 million already filled balloons would beat the previous record. They would just stop there and get the show on the road before the rainstorm could ruin the event. Moments later, the 1.4 million multicolored balloons Mm. were unleashed over Cleveland. Oh, no. Under normal circumstances, a helium-filled latex balloon that is released outdoors will stay aloft long enough to be fully deflated before it descends to Earth over the next few days. However, the balloon fest balloons collided with a front of cool air and <gasps> rain and massive amounts of rubber balloons dropped from the ground, still inflated, clogging the land and waterways of northeast Ohio. Oh, no. Large traffic jams, collisions, and drivers swerving all over the roads were caused 
by the balloons and drivers were distracted by the spectacle, Burke Lakefront Airport had to shut down a runway for half an hour after balloons landed there. Oh, God. The balloons landed on a farm in Medina County where they spooked the Arabian horses owned by Louise Nowakowski. I think Arabia. Arabian horses. They're um, like fancy horses. Are they? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's why she's mad. Yeah, okay. for sure. Apparently, the animals became so alarmed by the swarm of balloons, they suffered permanent injuries as they tried to evade the swarm. No! Now, Akaski would later sue United Way for $100,000 in damages and would settle for an undisclosed amount. Oh, boy. Everywhere you looked, a rainbow of tragedy was floating and landing around the citizens of Cleveland. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> then the police got a call. Two fishermen... Raymond Broderick and Bernard Sulcer, oh, no. who had gone out on September 26, were reported missing by their families. Rescuers spotted the 16-foot boat anchored west of the Edgewater Park break wall. So it was like anchored and kind of like rubbing up against that wall Ooh. a little bit. That's not good. Yeah. A Coast Guard search and rescue helicopter crew had difficulties reaching the area because of the asteroid field of balloons. Oh, God. It was already hard for them just to even fly in the area, but then there were just balloons everywhere. A search and rescue boat crew tried to spot the fishermen floating in the lake, but guard officials said balloons in the water made it impossible to see whether anyone was in the lake. Mm -mm. Usually the fishermen might wear orange life vests or something like that, but with the number of orange balloons in the water, it felt impossible to spot them. Oh, my God. Oh, Three days later, on September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search. The fishermen's bodies subsequently washed ashore. The wife of one of the fishermen sued the United Way of Cleveland and the company that organized the balloon release for $3.2 million and later, later settled on undisclosed terms. Ugh. So, in the days to follow, reports were made that over 25% of the balloons landed in the water and there was a major cleanup to grab them all out of the water or what they could see or scoop up. Oh, they're not going to get them all. No. Um, organizers did plan for there to be about 10%, which I thought was still horrible. They're yeah. like, about 10% will land of in like there. like a million, though. Yeah. That's so many. I know. A large majority also floated or washed ashore on the Canadian side of Lake Erie. So, they did go to Canada. And they were really mad about it. Fucking, yeah, they should be. Due to the lawsuit and damages, the event actually turned into a net loss for the charity. Good news, though. They did manage to get into the Guinness Book of World Records yeah, in 1988. For shittiest balloon disaster? For largest ever mass balloon release. Oh, boy. However, due to the massive amount of damage done... Guinness no longer measures or acknowledges Good. environmentally polluting records such as balloon releases. Good call, Guinness Book. So they were only in the 1988 one, and then you don't see them ever again. And all of that was for nothing. <laughs> all for not. Great. The story of <laughs> the oh, balloon fest. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you yeah. know the people who have a sexual attraction to balloons are called lunars? Oh. Mm-hmm. There's a fetish where you, like, really like to pop balloons Ew, or, like, I rub them on yourself. Why? That makes me more comfortable. It was <gasps> on my strange addiction or something. It was on a one of those Discovery Channel shows that I love. Yeah. Interesting. So I'll have pictures and they will really freak out some people that yeah. do not want them floating in the water. Mm. Oh, I, no. Yeah. Those are my stories. Those were good. Thank you. Oh, boy. 
This Halloween, I decided to write about a topic I find extremely morbidly fascinating. It's called the Uncanny Valley. So a few of our fiends mentioned they had the fear of, like, random bad guys. So Mm -hmm. this is like a faceless, just a bad guy. Um, Figures in the dark, faceless abductors, even rescue workers in face-obscuring helmets. And we all know that all the best horror movie villains wear masks. So this got me thinking. What is it about an unreadable face that strikes fear into the hearts of practically everyone on Earth? Well, it turns out that there is more science to it than I thought. To understand why we're scared of frozen faces, we have to take a look at something called the uncanny valley theory. Ever wonder why everyone was so mad when Sonic the Hedgehog had those human-looking eyes in the first draft of, like, the animated one? Yeah. Ah, well, then this is for you. (laughs) The uncanny valley theory describes the relation between an object's degree of resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to that object. The concept suggests that humanoid objects that imperfectly resemble actual human beings provoke uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of uneasiness and revulsion in observers. The valley portion of it denotes a dip in the human observer's affinity for the replica a relation that otherwise increases with the replica's human likeness. So people like something that looks human up to a certain point, Mm -hmm. and then when it's too human, they cannot handle it. Right. Examples can be found in robotics, 3D computer animations, and even lifelike dolls. That's why we don't like creepy dolls. Yeah. I knew that. Yep. (laughs) With the increasing prevalence of virtual reality, augmented reality, and photorealistic computer animation, the Uncanny Valley theory has been more common in recent years. The Uncanny Valley hypothesis predicts that an entity appearing almost human will risk eliciting cold and eerie feelings in viewers. You know, like all those soulless animated people in the Polar Express. I know, yeah, that Mm -hmm. was... It's bad. Yeah, I don't watch that because of that. The most people are like totally put off by Polar Express. They can't handle it. Yeah. Or like the Mountain of Chanting Elves in that movie. It's Mm. too much. Oh, I've never watched it because I just can't. My kids love it. According to an article in Very Well magazine by Kendra Cherry, quote, the term was first coined and described by the Japanese roboticist Masahiro Mori in an article published in 1970. In his work, Mori noted that people found his robots more appealing if they look more human, while people found his robots more appealing the more human they appeared. This only worked up until a certain point. When robots appear close but not quite human, people tend to feel uncomfortable or even disgusted. And once the uncanny valley has been reached, people start to feel uneasy, disturbed, and afraid. So it's like a peak. You can't, once you get over it, you're done. It's creepy. So Maury used a number of examples to clarify this idea. An industrial robot has little human likeness and therefore generates little affinity in observers. But a toy robot, on the other hand, has more human likeness and therefore tends to be more appealing. A prosthetic hand, he noted, tends to lie in this uncanny valley. It can be highly lifelike and yet generate feelings of unease. So the uncanny valley is observed in a number of places. And some of the most famous ones include uh, the movie Final Fantasy. I've never seen this one, but apparently it's very famously disturbing for its uncanny valley effects. Um, The 2001 movie Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, showcased some of the most realistic CGI animation ever used at the time. Despite efforts to make the animated characters appear super realistic, the movie was a flop. 
The film's commercial failure at the box office is often attributed to the uncanny valley. Simply put, people didn't want to watch the movie because they found the animation too disturbing. Mm. The same thing happened to the Polar Express, although somehow within time, kids have latched onto that and it's not as bad. But I remember when that movie was originally on TV, like after its major release, Mm -hmm. people were very not okay with it. I want to say now it feels more cartoonish than it yeah, did at the but time. But then it was like cutting edge, but the yeah. delay and like the little bit of the face, I don't know. It just, Ugh. yeah, a lot of people were freaked out by the Polar Express for this mm. exact reason. Um, and the third example I think is actually pretty funny is Shrek. The early test screenings of the film Shrek elicited unexpected feelings of anxiety in children in response to the character of Princess Fiona. She was simply too lifelike. And it caused kids to feel unnerved and even frightened. <laughs> Many crying whenever oh, she appeared no. on screen. That would be me. <laughs> Based on the responses and feedback, the filmmakers edited her appearance prior to the film's theatrical release to give her a more cartoon-like appearance in order to prevent the uncanny valley effect. This is the same thing with poor Sonic the Hedgehog. When they first released like the Sonic mm-hmm. art like a bunch of years ago, he had like human eyes and yeah. people could not fucking handle it. Right? They were like, absolutely not. Then they fixed it and he looks like more cartoony and now everyone's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You can't go over the edge. So basically, the uncanny valley is the place between cartoon and too real. So a human in a mask falls into this similar category. It's just like a little bit off. Mm -hmm. We recognize them as human, so we think we can trust them. But then we realize there is something unfamiliar about them and we feel betrayed. Some scientists believe this is a biological response that is similar in feeling to a human discovering a corpse. It looks like a person, it's shaped like a person, but it is no longer living, and so we feel frightened and want to turn away. Others say it is because our brain does not know what to do with faces we cannot read, and so it simply defaults to danger in order to keep us safe. This would explain our disdain for resting bitch face. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This might be just someone's neutral face. But because it is unwavering, we assume they mean us harm. (laughs) It's true. I know, I know. Neutral in a lot of our brains will just immediately default to bad. Right, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're sorry, resting bitch faces. We're just wired to think you're judging us. I am, okay, so for a long time, say like somebody's walking across the street or like at Wawa. Somebody's like walking across the car. Sure. And they'll look at you and you'll smile at them. Yes. Right? Um, I would do like a, like a little smile, just, you know, I want to be too friendly, just a little smile, just like, no, just like a little, Mm -hmm. I just like, like a, like I would just, I don't know. I grin like a Cheshire cat. Well, yeah, it was just a small smile. Like Uh I felt my face move from like standard to like a small smile. Well, one day I looked in the mirror to see what (laughs) I was doing because I never really got a great response after it. I realized that I don't know if I start lower, but it was not. I wasn't smiling. I just, I looked more like I had a resting bitch face then. You were bitchy at people. Like, I'll do it to you right now. Okay, go ahead. No, that's not a smile. I'm not smiling. But it feels like, I feel like I'm smiling. You look like you're like, oh. Yeah. And they were probably like, okay. (laughs) So ever since then, it was like a couple of years ago. And now I'm like, I smile at them. And then we had masks on and I was like trying to use my eyes. Oh, that was awful. I would smile (laughs) under that mask so much and be like, why aren't you looking back at me? This is, never mind. Mm -hmm. Then I lost my ability to recognize people for a little while. It was all weird. That's so funny. Yeah. Anyway. The Uncanny Valley. (laughs) So this Halloween, in honor of the Uncanny Valley effect, I decided to cover a bad guy in a mask. The Beast of Jersey, 
Edward Paisnell. I'm going to hate this. Yeah, you're going to hate it a lot. Jersey, you say? So we're in We Would Be Dead's home territory again? Well, you would think that, wouldn't you? But we're not. This story takes place in the OG Jersey, which is a self-governing British Channel Island near the north coast of West France. Oh, good. Jersey is not technically... <laughs> yeah, love it there. Yeah. <laughs> Jersey is not technically part of the UK as it is something called a bailiwick. Great word. But it basically follows UK rules. And I think if she wanted to, the queen could still arrest you or chop off your head or whatever she does these days mm -hmm. if you break her rules while in Jersey. So basically it's English. Incidentally, a bailiwick is a territory that is privately governed by a bailiff. The whole thing is weird and confusing, but the term is really cute, and I like saying it. Bailiwick. I like that. Bailiwick. bailiwick. <laughs> it's nice. Bailiwick. It's nice. Mm -hmm. Tim Gunn played a character named Bailiwick on Sophia the First, so that's cute, too. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why that sounds familiar. Yeah. I love bailiwick. Now the word doesn't even mean anything. I've said it so many times. Um, it's also famous for its wool trade and cows. Thank you. Jersey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's smaller than the greater London area at only nine miles wide by five miles long. So it's like just a little island community. And in the 1950s, its population was just over 30,000 inhabitants. So this is not very big. Anyway, in 1957, the small isle of Jersey was fairly remote. Most homes did not have televisions and telephone service could be severed by cutting the single wire that connected the house phone to the outdoor lines. Jersey was removed from the mainland and therefore the whole island had the feeling of a small town where there wasn't much to do and everyone knew everyone else. And if we have learned anything in the cases we have covered so far in 2022, it would be that bored people plus remote location equals eventually something horrible. Yeah, that's math. It's been like our theme this year and totally unintentionally. Hmm. You know, what's that telling us about Kate May? Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> In 1957, the Beast of Jersey began to attack. It was late winter, and a young nurse stood at the bus stop in Mont Alab, this area of the island, whatever. Uh, she was waiting for the bus to come along and bring her home. She was alone at the stop that day, but that wasn't terribly uncommon, so she wasn't particularly on guard. Cold and a little impatient, perhaps, but not nervous. After a few moments of waiting, a man dressed in a long coat with a scarf wrapped over his entire face approached her. It was strange to see this sort of mummy person ambling towards her, and the young nurse couldn't help but stare. The man now walked with purpose directly towards her, which concerned the young nurse, but she did not expect the worst of people, and so she did not immediately run. As soon as he was within striking distance, the man beat her over the head and tied a rope around her neck. He then pulled her by the neck through the woods and into a nearby field where he raped her and con continued to beat her mercilessly. When he finished, he ran, leaving the young nurse bloody and terrified. Oh. I know. Just run away all the time. You see someone walking towards you. I know. Run away. I know. They were just nice. Ugh. Ugh. Thankfully, the young nurse survived and was brought to the hospital by some helpful citizens who discovered her in the field. She was badly injured and required quite a few stitches, but thankfully walked away with her life. Okay. She told the police that the man who attacked her was approximately five foot six inches tall, had an awful, musty stench Ew, about right. him. Ugh. Yep. Just like an old Just like smell. gross. Mm-hmm. And his face had been covered with a scarf. Not much to go on, but authorities said they would do their best. They searched in vain for the masked attacker, but found nothing. And this is in the days before DNA testing, so even though there probably was an ample amount of evidence left behind, there wasn't much they could do with it. Mm-hmm. 
The beast, however, learned that this method worked for him, and so he continued on the same way, abducting, raping, and assaulting unsuspecting victims who were waiting alone for a bus. Oh, you know. The man attacked a 20-year-old woman next in March of 1957. She was walking home from the bus stop near Trinity when he approached her, face covered with a scarf, beat her around the head, tied a rope around her neck, then he pulled her into a field by the neck, raped her, beat her, and ran away. Oh. I know. In July, he attacked a 31-year-old woman at a bus stop yet again, and then in October of 1959, a 28-year-old woman near a different bus stop, this time in St. Martin's. All the women described the same man. They thought him to be in his early 40s, about five foot six inches tall, face obscured by a scarf with a horrible, musty smell. So we're looking for like a little stinky guy who always carries a rope and covers his face. Like a troll? <laughs> kind of, but and like, <laughs> that feels pretty identifiable. That's, that's a weird guy. And on a small island, you would think maybe someone would have seen something, but they hadn't. No one had the faintest idea who this guy was. I do think women maybe should have started waiting for the bus in pairs. I don't think I would have been going to the bus stop alone. No. But that's not a statement of victim blaming. It's just me retroactively wanting to protect them all. I know. Also, I mean, his description sounds fairly easy, but he always had his face wrapped. So like, unless that's just what he went out in every day. He was just the invisible man all the time. Yeah. I don't think that was the case. No. I always wonder how he saw. They say a scarf was over his whole face. I'm sure there was like a slit. Maybe. Ew. Or it was like a a sheer. Maybe. I don't know. So after those attacks I just mentioned, for a brief period of time, the attacks stopped. This will happen several times. It's what we know as a cooling off period. Yeah. But before long, a 15-year-old girl reported fighting off an attacker at the bus station. A man with his face disguised, who smelled terrible and spoke with a gruff Irish accent. A new detail. It seems they were looking for an Irishman. The other victims then confirmed that, yes, he spoke with an Irish accent, but it was strange and sounded put on, as though he were trying to disguise his voice. It's the guy in the back. Oh, no. (laughs) Where where was was he? At the Jameson Distillery. (laughs) Oh, Oh, gosh. Hi, girls. Ew. Ew. He comes back all the time the character I never wanted but now have. Right. Great. Yeah. So, of course, he was disguising his voice. He's disguising everything else about himself, Mm -hmm, so that makes mm -hmm. sense. It was at this point that the faceless attacker was dubbed by police and the media the Beast of Jersey. The island was terrified, constantly waiting for another attack, looking over their shoulder on every bus ride. But this would do them no good, because at the dawn of the next decade, the Beast decided to change tactics. They were watching bus stops now, so he would have to be sneakier. Plus, I imagine that escalating was something he required to get the same thrill he had with those first attacks. We see this with serial killers, too. They have to kind of up the ante as they go. Mm -hmm. And so the beast began silently breaking into homes in the dead of the night. No, we're done now. No. Holly. It was Valentine's Day, 1960, when a 12-year-old boy awoke to a strange sound. (laughs) He most likely thought it was something benign, but when he opened his eyes, he saw a man in a rubber mask shaped vaguely like a human face. I'll show you the pictures. It's awful. I don't want to see them. (laughs) And the man was standing at the foot of his bed. He then shone a flashlight into his eyes, blinding the boy. The intruder then assaulted him, tied a rope around his neck, and forced him outside into a nearby field where he sodomized him and then ran. The beast now had a new disguise. 
The mask is rubber and flesh-colored. It does resemble a human face, though the features are all completely neutral, genderless, and, like, definitionless. Yeah, I hate that. I know. Yeah. There are no real identifying characteristics. It's just blank like a mannequin. Okay, you can stop describing it. (laughs) Yet again, the boy (laughs) described his attacker as 5'6"-ish, musty smell, weird accent. How old was this kid? He was just like... I wonder, I always wonder when they do that, when it is like a child or just somebody and they're always like five, six-ish. It's just like, did they have him kind of give a height? Like, Probably. Point, you know, if he was like, the man was five, six. He was around <laughs> as tall as my mom or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they probably have to have a comparison. Yeah, probably. But those oh, are like, ew. Yeah. And five, six is like kind of little for but a grown man. Is this man. the first boy that he hurt? Like, yeah, I think so. Male figure? Yeah. <gasps> I know. A month later... A woman walking to a bus stop in St. Brillad stopped to speak to a man who had stopped his car and offered her a lift. No. He said he was a doctor who was on his way to pick up his wife. Ugh, the woman accepted the ride no. and the two drove off. I know, Ugh. these people are very nice and trusting. God. When she turned to speak to the man to like have a little conversation during their ride, she realized that he was wearing a great big overcoat, hat, and gloves, and his face was obscured by a large scarf. I'm sorry. She just got in a car without really seeing this man. And he was like totally bundled up, I guess. Yeah. Maybe he like yelled from out the car window and she didn't. Ladies, we trust men too much. Just stop it. Yeah, no. I guess we're stopping it now. We are. We are stopping it. (laughs) Okay. At this point, she realized she had made a huge mistake. Yes. Oh, poor woman. I know. But the man had already driven them to a secluded part of the island. Oh, He then beat the woman, punching her hard in the face, and tied her hands behind her back. Then he led her out of the car into a field where he sexually assaulted her. I don't know why they keep saying sexually assaulted her. These are all rapes. Right. Once he had finished, he led her back to the car, and the pair drove off, which is wild. You're just going to keep driving like nothing happened? No, sir. That is not how things work. And I don't think he ever intended on killing her because he doesn't kill anyone. Spoiler alert. Right. Realizing that she would not probably have another chance to escape, the woman jumped out of the moving car Uh and began to run, screaming through the countryside. Yeah. Panicked by the noise, the man sped off. So here's the thing. This guy is dangerous and violent and awful, but you can scare him off by alerting people. Okay. Later that month, a 43-year-old woman and her 14-year-old daughter were asleep in their cottage in a remote part of the island in St. Martin's. This is a section of Jersey or a little part of the Channel Islands. The mother was awoken after midnight to the sound of the phone ringing downstairs. She got out of bed to answer it, but there was silence on the other end, followed by a click and then the dial tone. Oh, was it coming from inside the house? Assuming it was a wrong number, she went back to bed. Yeah, I mean, that happens, but like, was it co- I'd be like, no, oh no. A while later, she was awoken again by a noise. I'm never going to handle a silent <laughs> cell phone call now. I'm going to be like, <laughs> I don't answer my phone ever anyway. If you don't tell me you're calling me, you will get my voicemail. <laughs> I know, sometimes I have to answer because of business, but like, <laughs> She went back down the stairs to investigate the strange sound, turning on the lights to see better. When she reached the bottom step, the lights went out. And she realized she wasn't alone. Oh, yeah. There was someone in the living room waiting for her. So she picked up the phone to call the local police, but the line was dead. 
the phone line had been cut. Remember, as I said earlier, these houses had one cable that connected the phone. Mm -hmm. So it was very easy to disable it. The figure in the living room ran at the woman and demanded her money and threatened to kill her. Now, this is also strange and standalone. The beast was not typically a burglar, but he would occasionally act out of character on purpose to attempt to throw off the police. Mm-hmm. In the struggle, the woman's 14-year-old daughter awoke to hear the noise and went to see what was going on. No, stay in the room. When he saw the young girl, the man let go of her mother and lunged up the stairs. At this point, the mother made a break for it and ran to her neighbor's house. She brought her neighbors back to the cottage to catch the intruder, but when they arrived, they found her daughter alone. She had been tied up and raped, but was thankfully still alive. See, I don't think I could have left my daughter. No, with I was that just grief. thinking that I, I couldn't have, have left the house. I would have flung right up the stairs. Yeah, me too. I would have run right after him real yeah. fast. And you know what? Maybe I would have paid the ultimate price, and maybe this woman was right because she did come back with help. But still, I don't think I could have run. Yeah, I think I would have had to stay. There were two of us at that point, and this is a little guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the beast continued. In April. A 14-year-old girl was awoken by a man in her bedroom watching her as she slept. No, Holly! I know, I hate that. Oh, this is my worst nightmare. (laughs) You weren't supposed to scare me. You were supposed to scare everyone else. But I was. Everyone else said the same thing. This isn't fair because I have to drive home. (laughs) Realizing there was a stranger staring at her, she began to scream, so always scream, in the hopes of waking her sleeping parents. And it worked. And the man ran away. So he's got to scream real loud. In July of the same year, an eight-year-old boy was kidnapped from his home. He had a rope tied around his neck and was led into a nearby field where he was sexually assaulted. After the assault, he was taken back to his home and delivered directly to his doorstep. I, I know this guy is a lot. I, okay. This would be the last assault that year. At this point, investigators realized that the Beast of Jersey had to be a resident of the island due to the frequency of the attacks. So they began to interview every man in Jersey who had a criminal record. And this is a small community, so it's not going to be an overwhelming number of men. Mm -hmm. But none of them fit the description the victims made. Officers also requested fingerprints from all adult males on the island, but they also all had the right to refuse. Among the refusers... There were 13 men who refused, and one of them was obviously the masked man. So mm-hmm. he just said, no, thank you. You can't fingerprint me. Wait, so that was, sorry. Oh, out of all of the out men? Out of every on- man on the Isle of oh. Jersey, 13 of them declined being fingerprinted. Okay. And one of the 13 was the guy that did okay. it. Oh, such a scary number. Too. I know. Ooh. Eventually, Jersey police arrested a man named Alphonse Le Gastelois. For the attacks and rapes, he was known as a strange fisherman who lived on the island. The police were grasping at straws. They didn't have any proof that Alphonse was guilty, but they needed to arrest somebody, and they thought that any eccentric characters just kind of needed to be looked into. Mm. So they arrested him. He was released after 14 hours of questioning due to the lack of evidence, but the damage had already been done. Alphonse was guilty in the court of public opinion, His name had been given to the press, and his picture was all over the local news. After an angry mob burned down his house, Mm. Alphonse was forced to flee to a group of islands on the northeast coast of Jersey. He died in June of 2012 at the age of 97. Mm. Hopefully, he lived out the rest of his life in relative anonymity because he did nothing but be a little bit weird. Okay. 
In February of 1961, the attacks began again, but this time the Beast of Jersey's pattern changed and he began solely targeting children. By April, three young children had been taken from their homes and attacked. The local police were at a loss and they didn't know what to do next, so they called Scotland Yard to help with the investigation because we're in Scotland Yard territory. Scotland Yard, who were no help at all, told residents that they needed to start looking out for each other and set up a neighborhood watch. Yeah. Thanks, Scotland Yard. All right. No wonder they needed Sherlock Holmes. They're not doing their job. I know. They also created a profile of the attacker from the descriptions made by the victims. 40 to 45 years old and approximately 5 foot 6 inches in height with a medium build. He knew the island well, especially the East Coast. He had a mustache but covered his face either with a scarf or mask during the attacks. He wore a long, dark, musty coat, a hat, and a pair of gloves. He entered homes through bedroom windows using the moonlight between 10 p.m. and 3 p.m. and carried a flashlight. Despite the profile, I know, investigators hit dead end after dead end, and eventually the attacks yet again stopped for a few years. But two years later, in April of 1963, a nine-year-old boy was the next victim of the masked man. He was taken from his home to a field with a rope tied around his neck and sodomized. As before with the other victims, he was brought home again immediately after the attack. So just to interject, the most responses we got to what was your biggest fear was someone hurting my children. Right. So this also checks those boxes. In November, that same thing happened to an 11-year-old boy. And in 1964, during July and August, a 10-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy were also attacked in their homes in the same way. For the next two years, the Beast of Jersey went dormant yet again. Finally, neighborhoods began to calm their self-policing, and it appeared that the attacks might be over. Then, in 1966, the police received a letter from the Beast of Jersey himself, and this is what it said. My dear sir, I think that it is just the time to tell you that you are just wasting your time, as every time I have done what I always intended to do, and remember it will not stop at this. But I will be fair to you and give you a chance. I have never had much out of this life, but I intend to get everything I can now. I have always wanted to do the perfect crime. I have done this, but this time, let the moon shine very brittle in September, because this time it must be perfect. Not one, but two. I am not a maniac by a long shot, but I like to play with you people. You will hear from me before September, and I will give you all the clues just to see if you can catch me. Yours very sincerely, wait and see. I hate that. Mm-hmm. Oh. In August, after the letter had been received, a 15-year-old girl was brutally assaulted in her home, but the attack was different this time. The girl's body was covered in long scratches that were perfectly dispersed in parallel lines. After this attack, there were no more incidents for four years. Then in August of 1970, the beast returned. A 14-year-old boy awoke from his sleep in his Ballet Deveau home to a flashlight shining in his face. Again, he was attacked as the others were, but this time, when he was being led back to his house, the masked man spoke to him. He told the boy to stay quiet, quote, because if you don't, someone will harm your mother and father. When the boy's parents found him, he was disheveled and upset, but wouldn't speak of what had happened to him. Eventually, he told them and then was taken to the hospital to be examined and stuff. And the doctors discovered that he also had scratches down his torso, similar to the ones that had covered the girl four years earlier, parallel lines, perfectly spaced. 
In addition, this boy told the police that the man had spiky black hair and was wearing a frightening mask. Mm. On July 10th, 1970, two officers were cruising around the Isle of Jersey on their regular night patrol. It was almost midnight when they stopped at a red light near the St. Helier district when a car ran the stoplight right next to them. Who runs a stoplight right next to police? You gotta be. All right. The officers chased the driver who was trying desperately and obviously to get away from them. Unfortunately, he drove on the wrong side of the road and up an embankment onto footpaths and eventually crashed into a hedge and stopped in a tomato field. Hmm. That is like the longest, weirdest, reckless chain of driving. Oh, yeah. Into a tomato field? This is France, right? Oh, it's between France and England on a little okay. island. When he got out of the car, so then he crashes in the tomato field, gets out of the car and starts running on foot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're done when you crash in a tomato field, but I guess not. So the officers ran after him, and he eventually, they tackled him to the ground and arrested him. Mm-hmm. On the ride to police headquarters, officers noted a musty smell coming from the man. Oh. And when they were finally in the station, they saw the man's appearance for the first time. So this guy's been under the cover of darkness the whole time. They couldn't really get a good look at him. They now notice that he's wearing a long, dark coat with inch-long nails and screws sticking out of the collar, cuffs, and shoulders. These were what made the marks on the young girl and boy. Hmm. So he's just like nails all over his cuffs and stuff. When they emptied out the man's pockets, they found a black flashlight with tape covering the majority of the glass so only a pinprick of light would shine through. I hate it. Two pieces of cord were there also that were to be used for tying up his victims, as well as a wool cap and duct tape. They also found a spiky black wig (gasps) and the mask he had been using to terrorize his victims. Police were able to determine that the man in their custody was a beloved local named Edward (gasps) Paisnell, Uncle Ted to the kids on the island. Oh, my God. Somebody they all knew. Born in 1925, 46-year-old Edward Paisnell was a family man with a wife and children. He worked in construction. He came from a wealthy family. He had no criminal record except that he was imprisoned for a month when he was in the armed forces during World War II by German officers because he stole food to feed starving families. People loved him. Wow. He even played Santa Claus at the children's foster home where his wife worked. Oh, my God. Of course he did. Mm Mm-hmm. But Edward Paisnell also clearly had another side. According to his wife, he had a low sex drive and once took a mistress. However, his wife considered this to be relatively normal and didn't raise an eyebrow. Well, yeah. It's Europe. um, It's 1960 (laughs) or whatever it is, 70 at this point. When questioned about the getup he had on and why he was speeding, Edward told investigators that he was Go into an orgy and didn't want to be recognized. Well, yeah. I mean, one has to stay anonymous at an orgy. What do they think he is, a savage? Right. <laughs> I'm not going to wear my orgy mask and collar of nails. <laughs> Get out of here. Ew. As for the nails embedded in his cuffs and collar, <laughs> he said that he added those in case he was attacked by someone who knew martial arts. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> On the dude. way to the orgy. Ugh. He refused to talk about the mask and wig, though. They were like, what about these? He was like, hmm. Mm. Ew. It's like, I didn't come up with an excuse for that yet. Nope. And he had clearly worn them both that night, judging by the impressions <gasps> they had left behind on his face. So he still had, like, marks yeah. in his skin. Edward was remanded in custody, and officers were sent to search his home. 
Once in the house, they found a locked secret room inside his bedroom. It smelled of must, and they found a bunch of old clothing and homemade wigs, complete with fashioned false eyebrows to match. Oh, I hate that. Yep. Now, every account I've read of this story calls the smell he has musty, but in a different interview, just one of them, I read that the smell was cigarette smoke, among Mm. other things, and that Edward did not smoke in his civilian life, so he used this to throw police off the scent, so to speak. Mm. So they would be looking for a smoker, and he figured, well, I'm famously not a smoker, so they won't be looking for Mm -hmm. me. They also discovered a camera and photographs of several houses across the island. Investigators believed that Edward had been spying on his neighbors and planning his attacks for years in advance. Not only that, but he seemed to have a bunch more lined up. When authorities asked old Uncle Ted about the photographs, he told them he chose his, vic- he chose his victims before he committed the crimes. He knew specific details about the families and their homes and knew which windows to climb into on the night of the assaults. They also found his shrine to Satan, which included an altar, a sword, and an extensive collection of books about black magic and the occult, because no case is complete without a little Satan blaming. Oh, man. Get out of here. On the 29th of November, 1971, it took a jury just 38 minutes to find him guilty of 13 counts of rape indecent assault, and sodomy against his victims. He was sentenced to 30 years in Winchester Prison in the UK, but was released in 1991 after 20 years served for good behavior. What the fuck? I know, don't let that guy go. He tried to move back to Jersey, but due to the reign of terror he held for so many years, shockingly, he wasn't welcome. He said, you can't come here. So instead, he moved to the Isle of Wight and died three years later from a heart attack in 1994. Oh, he's dead. Yep. A little follow-up. In 2007, a child abuse investigation with codename Operation Rectangle began, um, which saw many children in foster care on the aisle that were abused for many years. So this was an investigation of the foster care system. And in 2008, during a search of the Haute de Garin, a home, this is a foster child home that housed up to 60 children at a time. Officers found 65 milk teeth in the basement, that's baby teeth, many belonging to older children who would have already shed them. They also found shackles under the dirt, which were attached to the walls. Children there were abused by staff, and for a long time, it was believed, because this is the foster care home that his wife worked at. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. It was believed that Edward Paisnell was part of the conspiracy due to his involvement with that specific place. But police has since confirmed that they don't believe he was part of that inquiry. Though he was only charged for 13 counts, it is believed that he assaulted many, many more people than the number who came forward. Wow. That is the beast of Jersey. Oh, my God. So that, I mean, it has similarities to the Golden State Killer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When did he? I think he started in the 70s, although I could easily be very wrong. Let me. Wasn't he a police officer or something? I know he started when he was like young, too. He, hmm. Yeah, he was a former police officer. He started in, I think, 1974, 73. Would he have already been a police officer at this point or was it before? I think his police officer career was over at that point in time, but I don't. I, I thought he was young when he started. Um, let me look, because I, I haven't covered this guy. Yeah. 
Um, well, I was just wondering because I wonder if he heard of this case and got any like pieces. From I don't it. know. Well, um, the Golden State Killer was after he was finished. I know. Yeah. Oh, if you. Oh, okay. I was thinking the other way around. I don't know. Maybe he could have. Yeah. I hated that. Yeah. Pretty gross. And this is why we definitely. I'm sorry to everyone listening, but I don't know that we can cover the Golden State Killer. No, we have said that before <laughs> that we don't. I well, just, also, I can't do. I can't. <laughs> I. This is, so, this is so scary. I listened to the other podcasts on the Golden State Killer and yeah. stuff, and it's very hard to listen to. Yeah. Especially because they have, like, phone calls recorded mm-hmm. and stuff, and they're, you can hear him. It's awful. The only one I think I ever listened to was Morbid's. That was their first— was their first one, right? First case. So um, they didn't even have the whole story yet. Mm. Uh, and then, but it was short. It was only like there, it was one of those 45 minute episodes. So oh, okay. that was creepy enough, but I couldn't imagine if it was like every detail. I listened to Wondery's series on it, which if you are looking for a very complete account of the Golden State Killer, mm-hmm. I recommend it yeah. in- information wise. It's very informative. Also read I'll Be Gone in the Dark. That's a great account that. of it. I know it. <laughs> it's hard and sad. Um, I watched some of that documentary too. People have covered it very well. And I, I don't know that we need to. Yeah. So. Um, but going back to this this case, mm-hmm. the, have you heard this one before? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mostly because of what um, the guy looks like. Okay. The pictures always appear in like lists of the creepiest killers and stuff because yeah. I'm, I mean, guys, I will post pictures of this. No. I will. And I'll show Leslie. If you're a patron, you'll get to see Leslie react to no, it. No, I don't want to see you it. You have to see it. No. Come on. I can't do it. You had to oh. see it. Really not gross. reacting well already. <laughs> You're not. But it's a police officer that tried on his mask. I don't know why they thought like, I'll just put this on. Gross. But it always shows up in like the creepiest photos because the guy looks fucking terrifying. It's like a very scary thing to look at. Mm. I didn't know how widespread his his crimes were. I kind of thought they were fewer. That was so many. It's a lot. It's yeah. a whole lot. And I didn't realize it was children. Yeah. I thought it was adult women. Not that that's better, but I didn't think it was quite as many children as it was. Right. So. Crazy. Well, thank you, Holly. You are so welcome. (sighs) Just talked about balloons. (laughs) You did talk about balloons. And Uh, I do have a story about animatronics at Chuck E. Cheese, but (laughs) maybe I'll save that one for another day. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Toast? Toast. Um, Oh, you had a lot. To the poor guy in the quicksand. Yeah, uh, Jose Escobedo. Our text for my never-ending story fans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to Jose and all of Cleveland that was blanketed yeah, in balloons. all of Cleveland. That's terrible. Um, and what was the third and one? And Cornelius. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, fire ant crotch. Terrible. Yeah. What? That's the worst. I know. I can't. So to to those guys. And I guess to all of the victims of the Beast of Jersey. Oh, and then what about, like, his wife? Yeah. His wife was like, I had no idea. This is so shocking. What? It was in the bedroom they shared that he had this, like, secret closet full of, like, S&M gear and masks. So strange. Yeah. I don't know if I can fully toast her because I feel like you live— you. She clearly thought he did something else. Mm-hmm. 
But I don't know that she would have thought it was that. No, I'm, I'm sure she didn't think Unless it was that. Unless she was part of what was happening at her orphanage. I mean, maybe. We don't know. That was just like a little end note on one of the articles I read. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, because those are just poor little children in an orphanage. Yeah. So, like, why would we care about them? I don't know. But also, like, <sighs> John Wayne Gacy had a wife who had no idea that there were people buried in her crawl space. Ew, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. She lived in that house with them Ew. buried underneath her. We'll cover Gacy eventually. People have mentioned him. He's just a very big case. Um, okay, so to all those people who were victimized, God, there was a lot of them. Thankfully, every single one of them lived. Yeah. So, them. Um, do we have anyone else to toast this week? We do. Hooray! To our fiend that I hope we, well, I hope we scared you. But also, part of me is like, I hope you didn't have any phobias this week, too. But to Aaliyah. Cheers, Aaliyah. She's a best fiend. We love you. We love a best fiend. Um, I think I think that's all for Halloween 2022. That's all I can handle. Yeah, I hope you guys were scared or had fun or both. That's the aim of the game. And we'll be back next week with a full case. And if we were approached in our nightmares by a floating lavender balloon, we, we would, would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I think it's my dog. No. Holly, I'm not oh doing no! Okay. Is that your husband? I sincerely hope it's my husband. I can't, I couldn't hear because I had the headphones on. I just heard a loud noise. Well, you guys, it was so good to know you. God. If we die live on air, John, please air this anyway. <laughs>